To butter with that. Wait, what's that? Do you hear it? It's the red carpet rolling out. It's the champagne <laughs> popping. It is the Butter with That Awards Extravaganza number three. Uh, we took a, a hiatus. The pandemic also killed the Butter with That Awards show three last go round, but it is back with a vengeance, with a fury, and with a, a list that has many things crossed out on my end in terms of deciding who is who, but I'm excited to be here, excited to talk about some movies. I did uh, 2021, did not a binge, but over the past couple weeks for me, definitely caught up on some ones that I wanted to see. Unfortunately, some films that I didn't get a chance to, so I look forward to watching them in 2022 and then reporting on them in kind of our normal format. Uh, How's everybody doing? Everybody looks great in uh, their tuxes. Their formal wear, dresses, whatever you're wearing. Everyone is gown over there. Yeah, Connor, I, I see you opted for the tuxedo t-shirt in lieu of the actual tuxedo, which is not, you know, it's a classier affair than that, in my opinion. But I guess it's uh, it's fitting in its own way. We are you know, all just, looking great. Christine, I love the peacock wings. Oh, why, thank you. I, yeah, I was inspired by our discussion about Rocket Man to just <laughs> swing for the fences and do the most... Uh, beautiful, wild, elaborate costuming possible. I feel like out of any of us, you'd be the most likely to be an Elton John um, dresser-upper. Cosplayer, that's what I'm looking for. I'm could pretty see that. sure through that whole movie, I was like, yep, would wear that. Definitely would wear that. <laughs> well, I am thrilled to talk about some of my favorite movies of 2021. I hope you guys are as well. Listeners at home, be sure to, before kind of get started, let us know what your favorite movies, performances, you know, just what were your favorite things about cinema? Was it going back to the theater? Was that everyone's number one favorite part of 2021? Potentially. Uh, but Dave, before we dive in, do you want to give a read of the categories that we'll be diving into today in the order that we'll be covering them? Certainly. This evening, we are going to be covering uh uh, so, some things that are in the Oscars, some things that are in the Golden Globes, but really are kind of just uh, our own because our award show is hands down the best one, period. So we're going to be kicking things off, of course, with best performance of 2021. Uh, next will be best use of sound and or soundtrack. Following that will be best cinematography. After that, we have best screenplay and or story. Following that will be uh, best TV show, uh, or I guess best season of a TV show, either way, whatever our interpretation of that will be. Then on to uh, kind of the biggies, best director, worst picture, uh, sort of a uh, an unconventional uh, wild card, but we always enjoy doing it. And then, of course, best picture of 2021. And unlike the Oscars this year, you will be hearing every single category as we go through it. No commercial <laughs> breaks. You're going to hear us dive deep into every single one of them. I mean, I guess you could skip ahead if you want, if you really don't care what our TV picks for. If you're only here for movies, well, that's your prerogative. Christine, is everything okay? Oh, no, that reaction was just like, what the fuck? They're doing off-air announcements of, like, all of very important categories. I'd be really pissed if I heard that. I mean, if I was, like, a, a nominated and was like, I'm getting pushed to the pre-show cocktail hour 
And I feel like every year they're adding more and more of the technical categories to the, oh, we're not going to show that during commercial. Um, if you want to hear us talk more about the Oscars and the process, be sure to listen to, I believe it was two years ago where we did our anti-Oscars month. If you want to hear our full opinions on the Academy and everything just wrong with the Oscars, but we are here to talk about 2021 and there were lots of really good movies that came out this year. Uh, I wish, as I mentioned, I could have seen more of them. So this is just me going off of movies that I've seen. I did not see the tragedy of Macbeth, unfortunately, um, did not see a lot of films I wish I saw. So I'll just kick it off with best performance. And that is, this was a really hard one for me, but I have to go with uh, Jamie Dornan in Barb and Star go to Vista Del Mar. Um, he is not, I guess he's technically like a supporting character, but I love Barb and Star go to Vista Del Mar. And in a lot of ways, these picks, so many of them could go to the masterpiece that is Denis Villeneuve's Dune. But I want to try to spread the wealth with other films that I really loved. And I really enjoyed Jamie Dornan's performance. Uh, he sings, he dances, and he has great comedic timing. Kind of plays sort of the, the straight man in this conspiracy. I don't really want to give away too much of the plot of the movie because there's a lot of surprises in store. Uh, but he plays so well off of uh, Kristen Wiig. And it's just really a phenomenal performance and one that really surprised me. And I think I've seen, I might've mentioned this last week or before, but I think I've seen Barb and Star go to Vista Del Mar four or five times since it came out about a year ago. Um, so it has definitely entered the stable of favorites. And I think uh, Jamie Dornan is a surprise knockout in that film. And, such, and it's just so good to see him recover after the Fifty Shades of Grey tragedies that he was in so it's good to see him and he was in Belfast another huge 2021 movie directed by Kenneth Branagh which I have not seen but I heard he is uh, very wonderful in that as well so good for Jamie Dornan and uh any thought or do we want to do thoughts on that or just move on we can cut this part I have a huge thought about that I'm so pleased you picked that performance because that is a that's one for the books it's been so fun to see Jamie Dornan just break out of his shell in such a wonderful way. I would also recommend The Tourist, which also showcases a wonderful comedic side to him as well. I was just going to say, I still have not seen uh, Barb and Star yet, but I'm looking forward to checking it out because I've heard like n nothing but glowing reviews. It might be fairly relevant in the next couple of weeks. Who knows? We'll see. Mm. Well, that is my pick for best performance. Got to give love to Jamie Dornan and Barb and Star go to Vista Del Mar. I'm going to turn it over to Sam for your first pick of the night. Who is awarded best performance of 2021. Yeah, thanks, Connor. Um, I'm in a similar boat to you. Uh, I wrote down all the movies that I saw this year, today, and it was <laughs> not a lot. Um, so I was tempted to just answer Godzilla for everything. Um, I didn't, though. I actually took some of this pretty seriously. And one of the performances that has really stuck with me um, was right around the end of the year, which was Andrew Garfield's uh, performance as Jonathan Larson in Tick, Tick, Boom. Um, Andrew Garfield learned how to sing for this role, did a fantastic job. And something that I, I really love is that there's so much footage of Jonathan Larson um, singing and performing Tick, Tick, Boom, and Andrew Garfield went beat for beat in performing it all. That's very, very difficult to do. Um, I think that he really 
you really lose Andrew Garfield in a good way in the movie and you just see Jonathan Larson and Andrew Garfield really had like a resurgence this year. So I'm glad to see that. He's a wonderful actor and my word goes to him this time around. How are we feeling about Andrew Garfield? Because he's been nominated for something, other things this year. I think he definitely deserved this nomination uh, for best actor at the Oscars. I really loved Tick, Tick, Boom. I thought I really didn't quite know what, you know, what it was going to be going in. And I thought it was an interesting mixture of a little bit of Jonathan Larson throughout the film here and there, kind of like archival footage of him and his performances. And I thought it's like a great kind of like biopic meets some documentary elements and Andrew Garfield uh, just really knocks it out of the park with Tick, Tick, Boom and Spider-Man toward the end of the year. He really, had the moment has the moment here yeah he also had another one that came out a little earlier i think in the eyes of tammy faye um didn't hear much about that didn't see it but uh he's he's been around okay so that's my choice christine take it away so uh this was definitely a hard one because i yeah a lot of big performances stuck in my brain i think ultimately the one I got really swept up uh, swept up in was Alana Himes' performance in Licorice Pizza. Now, she's getting a lot of buzz. And I think what I was so drawn to was the way she brought such a naturalistic and unfussy presence to this role. Now, granted, apparently P.T. Anderson wrote the role for her. Her character's name is Alana in Licorice Pizza. But I think, she, which can either, I feel like, set you up to do really well or set you up to not be able to do justice to a character that's, like, you know, written about you or written for you. Or not necessarily, it wasn't written about her, but it was a type of role that was written for her. But she brings this, like, wonderful unpredictability and she commands every scene. I feel like we've talked about eye acting before and I think Alana Himes' performance is not only eye acting in in subtle movements and of of her face, but also their wonderfully uh, wild, unpredictable moments. In in there's a lot of running in the movie, a lot of energy. So I think she really navigates uh, the this whole world of sort of. What is what is it like to be a young person in 70s, the valley? And how are you navigating this world that's of Hollywood that's based on uh, trying to be somebody you might not be? And I just yeah, I, I thought her performance was so wonderful uh, and she plays off Cooper Hoffman so well. And there's just the uh, wonderful, unfussy, as I said, unfussiness and uh, naturalism to the performance. I have yet to see Licorice Pizza, but that is um, when that eventually becomes on streaming sometime this year, I'll be sure to check it out. How about you, Dave? Rounding out best performance of 2021. Yeah, and uh, what a year. I mean, 2021 was for incredible performances. Uh, from Victoria Morales and uh, Kahu Verma is the fantastic dual leads of Hulu's Plan B to Francis McDormand and Denzel Washington's stirring performances and Catherine Hunter's pitch-perfect haunting portrayal of all three witches in the tragedy of Macbeth. This category was absolutely stacked, but ultimately, like Christine, I had to hand the baton off to Alana Haim uh, playing Alana Kane in P.T. Anderson's Licorice Pizza. Uh, I think it borders on straight up unbelievable that this is her first film, uh, her first lead film role, because she's obviously a natural 
Her performance shows incredible range and dynamism while still remaining wholly cohesive and convincing. She can turn on a dime between defensively scrappy and tenderly endearing and boasts a commanding nuance of all territory in between. There are times throughout the film where it feels like the film in this frame can barely contain her, almost like she could step right out into the audience at any moment. And I know there are a lot of folks who have seen the film who might find her character and characterization challenging or problematic, and lots of folks who won't see it because of what they've read and their assumptions. But regardless of what one thinks of the film on the whole, I think it's impossible to deny that Haim's among the strongest performances of the year and has an absolutely glowing future lying in wait ahead of her as a cinematic newcomer. So uh, hand over fist would have to have gone to her, although it was a tough decision. And we have arrived at our first double pick of the night. Um, from all accounts, I've heard just nothing but wonderful things about Licorice Pizza, or if not always wonderful, at least incredibly intriguing and definitely worth seeing and discussing for yourself. Well, that is our first category down. Best performance. We are now moving on to the best use of sound. Uh, I think this is maybe my favorite category that we came up with years ago, um, just because it can apply to anything from the way sound is used in a film, you know, and really any way soundtrack, um, diegetic, kind of any way sound is used in film can apply to this category. And for me, there's really no other choice but Denis Villeneuve's Dune has the best use of sound from, I think, what is Hans Zimmer's best work of his career um, to the way that Arrakis sounds, to the way that Kaladin, you know, the way like how sound informs space and informs what's going on. Um, Dune is just a masterpiece through and through, in my opinion. Um, and Hans Zimmer's work is just truly out of this world. Sound is incredibly overbearing in a lot of ways in Dune. And I think, you know, of course, it's incredibly purposeful and I think it really works. Uh, especially the bagpipes that play as they are arriving on Iraq as these like deafening um, bagpipes heralding the arrival of House Atreides. So for me, Hans Zimmer and all the folks who contributed to the sound of Dune uh, gets my best pick for best use of sound in 2021. I'm going to turn it over to Sam. What was your pick for the best use of sound this year? Yeah, so I threatened Godzilla before, and and this time it, it's come true. So for best use of sound, I gave it to Godzilla versus Kong. This movie was not good, but um, every every bit of sound in it is wonderful. I mean, I I love Godzilla's theme. I think what they did with Mecha Godzilla was really fucking rad. Dis I don't like King Kong. I don't give a shit, but like loved i i loved the sound and it really gets you hype so that one goes to godzilla i'm glad you brought up godzilla versus kong because that i had forgotten that that was all another 2021 movie that i had seen in my limited <laughs> my limited list and i also remember the sound being a lot of fun so good yeah good pick well it's one of them. Um, okay, so Christine, <laughs> what did you pick for best use of sound? Um, I picked Nico Levi's score for the movie Zola, which technically premiered in festivals 2020, but it didn't get a U.S. release till July 2021. So I'm considering it a 2021 movie. The movie is a dark comedy based on a Twitter thread uh, written by Asia King about her harrowing experience of a road trip to Tampa, navigating the world of dancing, sex work, and sex trafficking. Mika Levi, who also has done scores for Under the Skin and uh, Jackie, 
creates this dreamlike score that weaves uh, diegetic sounds like the rhythm of a pounding basketball with floating harp strums, low fuzzy electronics, woodblock hits, and, I, and, and then the iconic Twitter chirp since the screenplay was based on a Twitter thread. And the electronics and samples get more menacing as the story progresses, but the, sto- but the score itself really uniquely enhances the atmosphere and narrative while also maintaining a, a sparseness that doesn't overwhelm the story or what you're watching. I am all for like super intense scores because uh, I love me some Hans Zimmer, but I think, and I'll like take Interstellar's Hans Zimmer soundtrack any day, but I think this score really does a great job of, of, we of sort of presenting itself and then disappearing uh, and then sort of emerging again and disappearing. So yeah, uh, Mika Levi, they're fucking awesome. Check out all of their music and scores and everything. Nice. I would say if you're into crazy or smothering scores, then uh, go check out Spencer also, because that is a uh, Greenwood sort of totally unhinged. Uh, speaking of Greenwood, I was a big fan of uh, his work in Power of the Dog this year. I thought that score was pretty incredible, but ultimately had to hand off uh, had to hand off best use of sound and score as Connor did to uh, Zimmer for Dune. Uh, another uh, another two for here. Uh, Hans Zimmer's thunderous and dynamic score pairs seamlessly with the visual grandeur of Villeneuve's directorial vision. Uh, an eclectic mixture of traditional instruments melded with booming, almost smothering synths create an atmosphere all its own. And the attention to crafting unique Foley work to suit this new interpretation of sci-fi staple is as sharp and pronounced as any of the film's other dazzling features, uh, if not making it one of its uh, its most pronounced. So I would say that it's uh, it's definitely a, a very powerful score, a really awesome sense of sound design, uh, a lot of new and interesting sounds to suit this new and interesting vision of a sci-fi property. So all, across the board, I had to hand it off to Zimmer and their, uh, their sound effects team for uh, 2021. Dave, you put that so much more eloquently than I ever could, as you often do. So I wrote got, a lot of notes. <laughs> <laughs> so we've got another twofer. We got Dune this time as the twofer for this round, best use of sound. Uh, we're now moving on to category number three, best cinematography. Now, this was a tough one for me because, as I've mentioned numerous times, I'm sure many listeners hate me for saying how much I just love Dune, but I really do love Dune. So excited to talk about it in full on the podcast one day. But in order to spread some of the love, I'm taking a page out of Sam's playbook. Godzilla versus Kong for cinematography. Um, I love the way that color is used in this, um, the way that the shot is, uh, especially the, um, I just think it's so, the use of scale, that's what I'm looking for. Scale is incredibly impressive in Godzilla versus Kong. And that's something that's so important uh, in a monster movie like that. Um, there's so many scenes that I still, I've only seen it, you know, when thinking about it, so many scenes that stick with my mind, um, stick in my mind, especially the one where Kong is kind of tied to the, um, the aircraft carrier and the camera follows him underground uh, under the water and kind of this tracking shot of him and so i just think i forgot to look up the cinematographer's name apologies but i thought godzilla versus Kong for a film that really should not have been in my opinion like good like it just not, shouldn't work i thought it was shot way better than it had any right to be especially when they go under the earth and you see the sky above them is actually the crust like i thought the way that movie was shot uh was very impressive and 
Dune would get, but I want to spread the wealth to other movies and other parts of other films that I enjoyed this year. So passing it on over to Sam. Best cinematography. Connor, I was on mute, but I went, yes! <laughs> um, Godzilla for everything. I literally almost gave best performance to Godzilla, but like at the last minute, I was like, I don't know. Um, so cinematography, I feel like for me, I was literally... Um, I had no answers. So uh, I decided this maybe like mm, five minutes ago. Um, I saw House of Gucci. I really liked it. The cinematographer, I looked this person's name up. Uh, apologies if I mispronounce it. Darius Wolski. Um, I thought the movie was fine, um, but it was it was gorgeous. It was beautiful. So uh, that is where my pick goes. Christine, thoughts for your pick? Excuse me while I pull up my notes real quick. I just lost them. Life is tough on the screen. Okay, that's cinematography. This was also another uh, tough one, but eventually went with uh, Claire Maton or Mathon. Uh, I'm assuming it's French, so I can't pronounce it. But um, who did who shot Spencer? Maton's eye brings the eerie ghost-like majesty of the setting, the Sandringham estate, where the whole royal family goes to celebrate Christmas. The cinematography really brings this setting to life. There are both sweeping shots of the estate exterior gardens and, and farms surrounding the landscape, and also amazing shots of the long corridors, the huge estate rooms that both look absolutely gorgeous, but also intensify this sense of encroaching claustrophobia that Diana feels uh, as she is slowly breaking away from the constraints of duty and a really stifling and toxic marriage. The colors are also absolutely gorgeous. I was sort of not knowing how I was feeling about the overall movie, but visually and with Johnny Greenwood's score, it's something I could look at forever. Um, and she also was the cinematographer for Portrait of a Lady on Fire. And if I can do a brief mention, Connor, I, Connor and I were texting and Connor was like, I'm watching Spencer and it's definitely giving me like some like combination of other vibes, but also Portrait of a Lady on Fire. So he nailed it without even knowing that the uh, it was shot by the same person. So uh, she also shot Atlantics, which was a wonderful movie, 2020 or 2019 movie uh, that if you haven't watched is also gorgeous. So pretty much everything this cinematographer has touched is absolutely gorgeous. So shout out to Claire Mat Maton. Shout out indeed. If you asked if we were recording this on a different day, I might have fixed Spencer, but it was neck and neck in my notes here. But. I was feeling Godzilla versus Kong today, but uh, Spencer, I think everyone should really check out, especially if you enjoyed our episode of Portrait of a Lady on Fire and enjoyed that movie. Um, visually, it's a sight to behold. Yeah, there's a lot of, uh, there's some real splendor to that movie, which is uh, really, really well captured through its cinematography. Uh, similarly, I think that uh, in The Power of the Dog, uh, the atmosphere created by Ari Wegner in the film is so immersive that by the credits, I'd kind of forgotten what era I was living in. Uh, the scope and scale of each space is wholly convincing as place setting, the intimacy of the camera movements, the grandeur of its tracking and establishing shots, the laser-like focus of some of its close-ups, 
Uh, it's just sort of a bouquet of technique and taste that stands out as one of the strongest elements of a very good picture. Uh, on the whole, I don't think it's, um, I, I think it's, you know, I, I see why it's up there for best picture. It's sort of swept the Oscar nominations. So we'll see what happens with that. Uh, but at, at the very least, I did find its, uh, its cinematography to be really, really gripping, really immersive and really powerful. I believe that that cinematographer also shot Zola too. Uh, so Ari Wegner is uh, also another name to to be checking out. Yeah, Power of the Dog was also a really great looking movie, um, especially huge shots of the mountains were particularly enjoyable and new ways to look at them as well, which I thought is a really impressive <laughs> trick with us and with a really good cinematography is when you can look at the same thing twice in a different way. And also, yeah, it's a lot of people saying that like it was shot in New Zealand and they're like, oh, Montana. Yeah, this looks nothing like Montana. It's like, well, I've never been. It looks fine to me. <laughs> <laughs> it's the movies. Well, we are on to our next category, best screenplay. This was a tough one for me because I felt like I didn't click with a lot or at least like I wasn't totally absorbed with so much of like dialogue in films this year. Like there wasn't a huge standout for me, but when kind of broadening you know, thinking about screenplays of 2021, for me, my pick has to go to Chris McKenna and Eric Summer's script for Spider-Man No Way Home, a movie that has no right to work, a film that was incredibly kind of mysterious, didn't really know what to expect going in. Um, I don't really want to spoil parts of it. I assume everyone knows, but in case you don't know, I'm going to kind of stay away from some of the big highlights, but parts of the film that were the most surprising, I thought were the most well-written, the way that it coordinates so much of the last two-thirds of the movie, giving um, Ned and MJ more to do, Dr. Strange's inclusion. I thought this film had so many moving parts and executed them uh, expertly. And so I really have to give credit to Chris McKenna and Eric Summers for pulling off the biggest hit of the year, uh, a billion dollar movie now passing Avatar unadjusted for inflation in the worldwide box office. So the script also clicked with a lot of other people, apparently, too. And so Spider-Man No Way Home gets my best pick for screenplay. Connor. I still haven't seen it, unfortunately, and I really want to. But I have watched so many interviews with that entire cast. So I feel like I've watched it because I've reveled in the energy and the excitement that ever the whole world had about the movie and all like Tom Holland. Uh, I was just watching his interview on Seth Meyers, just the sweetest. Yeah. All of the marketing around the movie I've gotten caught up and swept up in and still actually haven't seen it. So it'll make it all the better. Uh, my pick for screenplay is also Spider-Man No Way Home. This movie was 20 years in the making, basically, and everywhere it could go wrong, it didn't. Instead, it, this is like a blueprint for how you do something and how you do it well. This movie brought me joy. Um, it made me like really, really excited for Marvel movies again. Um, I remember being in the theater with Tori, former co-host Tori and just screaming the whole time, even though I, I had like spoiled myself. Um, ever since a certain episode of Game of Thrones, I can I I literally cannot go to anything without knowing exactly what happens. Uh, it's still crazy to me. <laughs> yeah, I, I can't go through it again. I've, I'm traumatized. So even though, even though I knew everything, I was still screaming in my seat. So it was really well done. Another double. Got a couple doubles in the mix here. Yeah, I'm keeping score. 
Uh, I think so. My best screenplay uh, is an adapted screenplay, uh, and it is the screenplay for a movie called I'm Your Man, which was a German movie that came out in 2021. Uh, and it was written by Maria Schrader and Jan Schomburg, based on a short story by Emma Braslovsky. And this is a movie that I was intrigued by because it has um, Dan Stevens in it, speaking fluent German. So I was like, I obviously have to watch this. So I was lured in by Dan Stevens and stayed for a screenplay that has all of the familiar beats of like a rom-com. And I love the rom-com as a genre, but this movie masterfully transforms this, this uh, formula into a really quiet, but wonderfully uh, sci-fi like examination of partnership and the performance of desire. So the movie is about an archeologist who gets convinced by her boss to pilot a test love bot that Dan Stevens plays, <laughs> engineered to be her perfect match. So the movie basically follows the course of this testing, this bot testing that this woman has to participate in and is just what, uh, it's just such a wonderfully written movie that leans into rom-com, but ultimately has such tight writing that, as I said, says a lot more in a thoughtful way about love and desire and human and AI interactions and kind of what are their possibilities for having relationships with artificial intelligence without being like, I don't know, yeah, it was. It's. I, I highly recommend it. It's a quiet little movie, as I said. Great performances by both of the leads. How do you say that stacks up against something like her? I've never seen her, so okay. I would say her is probably a more like quote art arty movie. This movie is more. Uh, you know what? I can't even speak because I haven't seen. I haven't seen her. I just now. I'll, yeah, I'll watch it and see how it compares because I'm sure it explores a lot of the same themes. Definitely sounds interesting. Uh, for me, this was uh this was a tough one. It came pretty close to down to the wire, but ultimately I had to go with my instincts and handed off uh, best original screenplay or best screenplay in general to um, Franz Kranz's mass. Uh, Franz Kranz. Yes. The stoner archetype character from cabin in the woods that Franz Kranz has crafted a screenplay with all the intensity and range of character of a stage play, but also mastered the pacing of deep story revelation. As we listen to these two sets of parents wade through their collective grief in a crushing discussion discussion about their children's fates, we come to understand not only the details of that horrific event that brought them together without unconvincing rehashing of a linear timeline, but we also watch in real time as each counterpoint brings each individual humanity to light in all of its characters. Uh, what could have easily been mishandled as a one-sided discussion in a lesser writer's hands, Kranz gives, uh, by contrast, each character their due, their dignity, their grief, and their growth. Uh, it's a true exercise in taste, deep character, and meaningful catharsis. So quite a rousing screenplay, uh, especially given its limitations of only working with, pr principally working with only four characters. 
I've been so curious about this movie, Dave, since you've been um, talking about it for the past couple months. So I'm excited to one day go and give it a watch. There are evenings when I'm like, I really should watch Mass. And then I'm like, <laughs> I'm going to go watch something that's just dumb as fuck. And then, but yeah, it's definitely on my to watch list because it sounds it the- absolutely incredible. It has the power to derail a good day, but it is also very uh, powerfully touching and thoughtful. And I had no idea that the guy from Cabin in the Woods wrote it. That's so cool. He's um, really good in that movie. Wow, wow. We are halfway through our award show. We are just knocking these categories out. We're taking a bit of like four times instead of listening to the Oscars. Just think. And you'll probably get way more entertainment out of it. We are now moving on, diverting a little bit from our usual um, talking points to take a look at the best TV of 2021. Uh, I did not watch a whole lot of new shows. I feel like 2021 was a lot about revisiting comfort shows or kind of, oh, this is on Netflix and this was a show years ago. Let me finally watch this. But when thinking about the best TV of 2021, really came down to two picks neck and neck. And I have to give it to... WandaVision on Disney Plus as the first of these new MCU shows, you know, MCU shows on Disney Plus, because we've had the Netflix kind of like Daredevil, Punisher, you know, et cetera, that kind of Marvel show world. But as kind of like a new era of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, I thought WandaVision really knocked it out of the park on a lot of levels um, as a new sort of show. Um, and really each episode, generally each episode tackling a different decade of television um, and watching the, you know, for all the most of, I think the Disney plus big shows, they do like an assembled, you know, like behind the scenes, kind of like a little documentary. Uh, most of them aren't interesting, but the one for WandaVision was really interesting because it goes into how they used um, a soundstage, like an audience, like they for the I Love Lucy kind of like inspired episodes and how they painted Paul Bettany blue because red didn't look good in black and white. Um, and kind of using wires for like her psychic tricks. And so kind of really going through and really thoughtfully thinking about how to recreate the vibes of each of these different decades. Um, I thought the story itself was incredibly compelling. There are definitely for me some missteps, um, but overall I thought WandaVision was a really incredible first outing for the MCU in a television format. Um, And I think it was the first one and Next to, for me, Loki and WandaVision are neck and neck. So it was kind of like, do I go with the one that had kind of like a slower things I didn't like as much or Loki were kind of plummeted at the end, the last second kind of fumbling. But I'm going to go with WandaVision as the best TV that I saw in 2021. Uh, So I also picked WandaVision, but I'm tired of these doubles. So I'm going to uh, change my answer in the last minute and say Falcon and the Winter Soldier. Um, I had really high hopes for this show and it did not leave me disappointed. I think that I was really jaded and really frustrated with Marvel um, after Endgame. I did not like Endgame and I also hated the ending that they gave Steve Rogers. And so I was really hoping that they were going to serve us Cap fans and they they 100% did um, all the way down to using the same um, composer that they did in a winter soldier. And I was so thrilled. Um, unfortunately the show had to refilm a couple things. Uh, their, uh, main thrust was going to be a 
pandemic. Uh, so obviously they had to kind of um, retcon a couple things, which I think the show kind of suffered for. And, and some characters didn't really um, get to come forward as much as they should have. However, um, there will be nothing quite like that last episode and how much I wept through the entire thing. Um, watching Sam Wilson become Captain America is something that I'm really glad I live to see. So um, Falcon and the Winter Soldier gets my vote this time. Two marbles in the bag. I would be so curious to see what Falcon and Winter Soldier looked like if they did go through with the pandemic plot, because estimates go from like 30% being refilmed to like 50% being refilmed. And so I would love to see what that looked like. Because the idea of, oh, five people, you know, or half the world was gone for five years. Now they come back and are, you know, causing a plague is such an interesting concept. And I get why they diverted, but I wish they said, yeah, we won't get, I won't get into it, but definitely um, a great show and one that I enjoyed too. Uh, So my go-to for best TV this 2021 goes to Reservation Dogs. A uh, show created by Sterling Harjo of the comedy group, The 1641s, uh, that revolves around the lives of four indigenous teens living in Muske- Muskegee Nation land in rural Oklahoma. Features some amazing breakout performances uh, by actors like uh, Paulina Alexis, who plays Willie Jack, and some wonderful older, more familiar faces like Gary er, uh, Gary Farmer. So... Uh, it's a show that I highly recommend and I'm pretty sure it got signed on for a second season. Uh, it's executive produced by Taika Waititi. I think he also has a writing, uh, credit as well. Uh, and it's just weaves fun stylized scenes with just absolutely, uh, wonderfully tautly written examinations of the different facets of these, of, of these teens lives. And, uh, Yeah. I've heard such great things and I'm glad to hear that somebody I know really liked it too. So I'll put that on my radar for sure. Speaking of uh Tycho adjacent properties, I would say that uh, it's, it's not my, not my choice, but uh, one that I was introduced to introduced to this past year, which I did really love was what we do in the shadows. Uh, I felt kind of head over heels for that show, especially it rolled as it rolled into a fantastic third season. Uh, but there was another show uh, also rolling into his third season that really blew me away this past year, and that's Joe Para Talks With You, an Adult Swim original available through their app or HBO Max. The show amounts to something like a Mr. Rogers Neighborhood, but for adults. Uh, it's a heartwarming, tender, funny, and informative comedy about Joe Para, a mild-mannered, soft-spoken middle school choir teacher who, with the help of a cast of lovable recurring characters, talks the audience through his fascinations, his observations, and the unfolding events of his life. Uh, it's almost more of an extended hug than it is a television show. Uh, we're treated to the warmth and kindness of a Midwestern community and how they support one another through the good times and bad, all with the delightful balance of wholesome humor and well-paced character development. Uh, so one that I would say is, is a must-see. I, it's one that at the end of a long day, uh, if you pop one on, most most of the episodes are 11 minutes long, so they fly right by. You can watch a whole season in the time it would take you to watch uh, your average movie. Uh, but at the end of the day, uh, yeah, after after a long day or a tough day, you can just pop one of those on. And within 10 minutes, uh, I, I'm usually like s- s- uh, smile crying watching the episode. So I would uh, thoroughly recommend the show. It's really, uh, really warm, really tender and really puts you in a good place. I've been meaning to watch it. It's on my to watch. Definitely. I have a correction. The sketch comedy group 
I misread the numbers I'd written down. They're the 1491s, very intentional, the year before 1492. <laughs> I said something bullshit like 16-something. Anyhow, that's my correction for that troop that Sterling Harjo is a member of. That brings us now to one of the biggest categories of any award show, and that is Best Director of 2021. I'm going to write a wrong that I have not been. Oh my. This is this is one of the angriest I've been at the Academy, is that uh, for snubbing Denis Villeneuve as the director mm-hmm. of Dune, he was not, that movie got so many, I think 10? Power of the Dog got, I think 12. Dune got 10 nominations, but one of them was not Best Director for Denis Villeneuve. He is absolutely, and so that's my pick for Best Director, if you couldn't tell, uh, for 2021, is Denis Villeneuve for Dune. Do they think movies make themselves? No, he is. This is, you know, we talked about Spider-Man, Sam, like 20 years in the making. I feel like Dune is in a similar spot. Uh, There's David Lynch's version, which I know has its fans. There's definitely some highlights, but overall, I think it's a pretty terrible movie. But Dune, it felt like a revelation of this book that I really enjoy. Kind of, I, I thought Villeneuve was the perfect director. Once again, you know, this idea of like sense of scale that I brought Godzilla versus Kong also present in Dune, uh, the sweeping vistas, the personal scenes. Uh, he clearly cares so much about this world and is a real auteur when it came to making Dune as he is, it seems like in all of his other projects. Uh, I could go on and on, but I definitely recommend everybody watches the Vanity Fair YouTube video where it's, they do a series with directors breaking down one scene in their movie. And so for Villeneuve, they do the, he breaks down the Gom Jabbar scene where Paul's tested by the Reverend Mother of the Bene Gesserit. Out of all the amazing scenes in the film, that one is definitely for me in the top five. And I think it's toward the end of the video. He says, the only person I had to keep myself accountable to was my 14-year-old self and how he would feel about the choices I was making when filming this movie. And so I thought it's a wonderful video and just and a great example of why Villeneuve is one of the best living directors right now. And so for me, I got it right or wrong. It's got to be Denis Villeneuve for Dune. And I'm so incredibly excited for part two to come out. And what a ballsy move to put part one and the title of your movie that this you know two hundred million dollar sci fi epic coming out during a global pandemic with no guarantee of a sequel, um, but he did it anyway and it's going to get its sequel probably coming out twenty twenty three twenty twenty four. Yeah, I was a little shocked he wasn't nominated. Also, okay, I want to apologize up front for this pick. Um, I I can't believe I'm doing this, but I think I'm doing it just to be a little. Um, saucy maybe a little bit on the edge um god i there's nothing more in life to that i love than someone who says fuck you i'm gonna do it my way and i'm gonna right some wrongs and i'm going to to create and produce the thing I, i i always thought i was going to make and that i wanted to make and things got in my way and couldn't do it, but but I'm 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 gonna do it. So I'm gonna give best director to <laughs> Zack Snyder for Justice League. Um, I fucking hated it. Uh, however, what Zack Snyder did made it. He made it like an actually good good film. Um, 
compared to the the Justice League that had been released, um, had been finished by Joss Whedon. Um, that movie was literal dog shit. And this was better than that. Um, I still fucking hated it. And I cannot believe that like I put myself through like four plus hours of this absolute nonsense. But I really respect the fact that this guy was like, I'm going to fucking do it because the fans deserve it. So good God almighty, uh, Zack Snyder gets this pick for me. I think this is one of the few places where you'll find a best director nomination for uh, for a buddy, Zack. And this is the only place it should ever happen. <laughs> Sam, I'm shook. That's all. Oh, man. I have nothing to compare it to because I, I did watch the Snyder Cut. Uh, and I, yeah, I, the backstory <laughs> is quite fascinating. So I think, yeah, why not give props to a director that like was like coming in and I guess re-picking up the pieces of the work that was already broken of his and trying to put it back to, together again. Yeah. An admirable process. So I think this was really hard. I'm sort of doing a tie, which is kind of cheating, but like, whatever, fuck it. I think David Lowry, who directed The Green Knight, needs a shout out because that movie was friggin' awesome uh, that handles fantasy elements, epic poems, uh, knighthood and masculinity and themes of, of death and mortality and facing one's fate and all the most dramatic things. This movie handles it all and is tonally so interesting and was a lot of fun to watch. It's intense and the pacing is definitely measured uh, or slow, depending on your interpretation. So shout out to, to Lowry or Lowry and uh, also best direction, uh, best direction shout out also to um, Janixka Bravo, who directed Zola. Uh, I've never, uh, speaking of tone, this movie, I've never seen a movie quite like what tonally this movie achieves. It's definitely a hard watch. Uh, Bravo herself said that she's drawn to stressful comedies, which this movie definitely is. But under her direction, the movie masterfully balances violence and farce in a way that handles the main character Zola's really traumatic experiences with sensitivity and really striking comedic pacing. Um, so I and I think only in the hands of a really skilled director can something like that be achieved. So um, I definitely think uh, Janixka Bravo is a director to watch. I can't wait. I'm surprised to hear that you picked Larry, Lori, Larry, Lori, because Christine, yeah, do you remember one of our biggest, not yes. arguments, but arguments I'm, was about. Yes. I'm so glad you brought that up, Connor, because uh, to fill the listeners in, he also happens to have directed uh, a movie that I love to hate, which is a ghost story. And uh, I hate it because of its indulgent uh, scene that is, takes way too fucking long to eat a pie. Um, and so, you know, as I feel like we've addressed, humans uh, are made up of contradictions. And this one is a contradiction that I think is, is quite fun to think about. I still don't like a ghost story, but I still really love a Green Knight, the, uh, the Green Knight. So, you know, who knows? But I'm, yeah, I'm glad you, uh, 
<laughs> glad you brought that up, Connor. <laughs> so this is a pretty interesting year. Um, my two favorite directors, P.T. Anderson and Joel Cohen, both released new works this year that blew me away. And Jane Campion once again proved her heavyweight status as a master of the craft. But at the end of the day, it was ultimately Guillermo del Toro, who shined for me as a director this past year uh, with his uh, work on Nightmare Alley. Del Toro has brought us some famously complex works throughout his career, films that work in both humor and in darkness, in fantasy and reality, and always with this almost uh, signature sense of balance. He brings that to Nightmare Alley with the maturity and focus that makes it one of his strongest works. With the confidence to forgo levity in favor of a noirish sense of mystique, Nightmare Alley radiates homage to old Hollywood technique and an undeniable harmony of grit and beauty. The whole picture is breathtaking and breathless and invites you into a world of seediness and mythology with a balance that only a master like Del Toro could pull off. So I'd say it's easily his strongest work since Pan's Labyrinth and rightfully a contender for Best Picture. Guillermo, another um, several-time featured director on Butter With That. Mm -hmm. Be sure to check out Hellboy, uh, Kronos. Did we do Pan's Labyrinth? I don't think so. Not yet. I'd remember because we'd all be traumatized by that conversation as well as the movie. Wow, we are uh, getting close to the end. This is another category I'm so happy that we have. Uh, We're not really a negative movie podcast. Like, I don't think we've really covered at least like a theme of where we, a we hate movies kind of theme. Uh, We've definitely have varied opinions on films that we bring, but generally the intention is not to bring movies that are terrible and let's trash them for an hour, hour and a half, two hours. But we get the opportunity to at our award show and maybe a potential future theme. But today we are talking about now the worst movies of 2021. For me, there's really no contender for the worst film of 2021. And that has to be James Wan's Malignant. I, I know this movie's got its fans, but this film I thought just and i know he's going for like it to be this way but it just seemed just so horribly cynical terribly shot i thought the action like i thought this movie failed on almost every single level i think it's the only movie in letterbox that i've given a half star review to um and it made me reevaluate if i actually like james wan as a filmmaker because I love the first Conjuring movie, and I think the second one is is pretty good too. But I'm like, man, is he actually? And was he trying to burn bridges with Malignant? Because it's just so bad. I, I don't have all my thoughts composed to go into the multitude of reasons why I really can't stand this movie. But it is. I absolutely did not like it. I can't recommend it. I don't think on any level for people to watch it. And so without a doubt, this was what I think is the worst movie that I saw in 2021. But with that said, I know this movie has its fans, but I am definitely not one of them. I thought it was okay. I thought it was him trying something different, which I appreciated. But I I, uh, I, uh, I will agree on uh, all the other fronts that it is not uh, material that's handled well. Um, if you are a listener of this podcast, you will know what my pick is going to be. And that is Halloween Kills. This movie was absolute dog shit. Um, on Letterboxd, I wrote, what the fuck, man? And you know what? That's still all I can really say about it other than it was the worst thing I have ever seen. Ever? Yes. And I wow. have seen Food Fight. 
Mm, oh, right, right, right. That's such a shame because I haven't seen Halloween Kills because I've heard it so bad. But we talked about the 2018 one on the podcast. I think I think Tori and I both gave it best use of sound in our first award show. So the, the first one I, I thought is is very good to great. And it just sucks that they really just swing and a miss. Well, speaking of swing and a miss, uh, gotta say, oh, I already brought this movie up on the pod. Uh, worst picture from me goes to 2020, uh, 2014/2021's *The King's Daughter*, uh, starring Pierce Brosnan. It's one of these movies. It's like, who was this made for? Why was this made? It definitely blew its entire budget on the on shooting at Versailles and renting four horses for Pierce Brosnan to ride on and then was left with nothing else. The CGI effects look like they were created by a five-year-old painting with four different colors of lip gloss. I think the only, <laughs> I think the only redeeming aspect of this movie were Pierce Brosnan's uh, luscious locks that are prominently featured throughout the movie. It was a fun hate watch, but it's definitely a god-awful movie. So the luscious locks, they weren't enough to carry you through the film to get it uh, mean, to get it above a low, a low rating? In all honesty, they carried me drunkenly through two hours of watching the movie. <laughs> and I then looked at my phone the next day and realized that I had like a third of my camera roll was for <laughs> just stills <laughs> of Pierce Brosnan, which I'm pretty sure this butter with that crew received in a text thread while I was watching it with no context. Nice. Well, uh, in a year where the thuds were true thuds, uh, the likes of Tom and Jerry, Space Jam, A New Legacy, and 2025, The World Estranged, Enslaved by a Virus, they're, all of which were, you know, awful, but you could find fun in them. Uh, by contrast, there was one film that sunk leagues below the lowest of the low, and that would be Australian pop star Sia's directorial debut, Music. Uh, music, for those unfamiliar, follows a recovering addict assigned protective custody of her severely autistic half-sister named Music. Music is played by Maddie Ziegler, Sia's longtime stand-in music video avatar, who is a neurotypical actress who based her portrayal on autism meltdown videos posted to YouTube, turning in what amounts to a hollow and patronizing caricature of autism. Ultimately, the titular character is only a means of self-actualization for Kate Hudson's character, the lead of the film, as is Leslie Odom Jr. as Ebo, an African immigrant who, because the film deals only in superficial stereotypes, is HIV positive. Uh, all of this would be bad enough on its own, but the film manages to lower the bar even further by suggesting that when the two leads physically restrain music during a fit, they are, quote, crushing her with their love. Just to be clear, physical restraint of people with autism has resulted in several well-documented deaths, making its inclusion in the film a nudge beyond tastelessness and into the territory of a genuinely dangerous movie. Sia responded to the online backlash defensively, slamming people for criticizing the film without having seen it, and upon an actor with autism speaking out about representation and how someone like them should have been included, Sia quipped on Twitter, quote, maybe you're just not a good actress. Well, Sia, I have seen your film, and maybe you're just not a good director. 
I can respect a well-intentioned, if ill-informed, vanity project for what it is, but music sways into the rare but indefensible category of a film so ignorant that it could even be dangerous, and so it shamefully tops the category by a landslide. Uh, I would say don't watch it at all. Uh, it's a film that I was only able to watch because and I had to turn it off several times. I watched Titan, uh, the French body horror film where a woman is impregnated by a car earlier this year. It's one of the most violent films I've ever seen. And I was squirming in my seat less during that than I was with music because it's just so repugnant and repulsive and wrongheaded. And the only way that I was able to get through it, I watched it on Christmas night after the rest of the family had gone to bed. Uh, but had to go back and forth in between that and The Godfather Part 1 because I needed one of the best films ever made to wash the taste of this shit out of my mouth. So uh, a landslide for this category for me this year. I have nothing to follow up on that. It's awful. So, <laughs> wow. I've heard of it, but wow. Just, wow. I hope that's your letterbox review. I hope everything that you just said in the past 30 seconds is your letterbox review. I'd say again, like, you know, Tom and Jerry, stupid and bad, but it's fun. Uh, Space Jam, A New Legacy, it's a mess, but, you know, it's it's not entirely unworth watching. Uh, 2025, The World Enslaved by a Virus, one of the worst pictures I've ever seen. Still much better than this technically proficient, but utterly unforgivable movie. Well, bouncing back from the opposite of unforgivable to the highs of 2021, we are going to round out our last category tonight by talking about the best picture of 2021. It should come to the surprise of no one who's been listening to this episode that my pick for the best picture of 2021 is Tom and Jerry. No, <laughs> is Denis Villeneuve's... <laughs> I got you for a second, Dave. Uh, is Denis Villeneuve's Dune. Um, this is a film I was anticipating greatly for many reasons. I think it's the ultimate adaptation and probably the best adaptation we could receive of the book split into two parts. Let's just hope part two um, successfully closes out the you know plot of the first book. Um, I actually finished the first, I actually finished Dune, closed the cover, was about to text one of our friends that I just finished it. And then when I opened my phone to text her, I got a notification that Dune was delayed from April to October. I was like, no, I just finished it in March and was ready to see it. But it lived up to expectations. Um, I... It's still because it was nominated for a bunch of Oscars. It's still in theaters. So I might try to go see it in theaters a second time. I bought the 4K HD Blu, uh, the 4K Blu-ray for it with my PS5 that can play 4K Blu-rays. So um, incredibly excited to fire that up in the next uh, couple of days or week or so. And Dune is just stand out for so many reasons that I mentioned uh, that we've talked about already. For sure, this will be a film that I bring to the podcast one day. Um, probably the first available moment it's available uh, to stream on HBO Max in the next couple months. So I won't do a deep dive now. I'll save it for the pod in the future. By now, I think you'll know everyone listening should know that Dune is, uh, in my opinion, a masterpiece. So um, unlike Connor's choice of a, a, a masterpiece, what I'm giving Best <laughs> Picture to is uh, not that. And it's... <laughs> God, it's Venom 2, Let There Be Carnage. Uh, the reason why I am giving Best Picture to Venom is because this was the first movie I saw in theater since 
January 2020. It reminded me of why going to the movies is fun. The movie is a crisp, like 90 so minutes, a wild fucking ride the whole time. I laughed. I didn't cry, uh, I, but I laughed. I cheered. It was a really wonderful way to go back to the movies. And just because of that, I'm going to give it my award tonight. Is it wonderful? Is it great? No, no, <laughs> no. Um, but it's fun. Well, that's the second enthusiastic endorsement that I've heard of it, Sam, both from you and uh, from Paul Thomas Anderson. So definitely a movie that I'm looking forward to checking out. What? <laughs> yeah, I guess he, he had something where he's just like, hey, have you guys seen Venom 2? It's really good. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that like a, a writing of wrongs? Like, I think he's maybe, it. yeah, maybe he's like doing a thing like, oh boy, Scorsese's catching a lot of heat. I better try something different here. But I don't, I don't know if it's that. Oh, I know. I mean, like from the first one. Um, so the first one took itself seriously. This one does not at all. Um, it completely leans into the idea of being super camp and it, like it is so fucking funny uh it's incredible and i love you tom hardy so much appreciation for franchises that like are like fuck it we're gonna try something completely new and it sounds now i'm intrigued yeah I, i i feel like for this best pick best picture pick i'm going with the heart Before I go with the heart, I'll give some big shout outs to movies that are phenomenal. Uh, Like recently saw saw Almodovar's new movie, Parallel Mothers, uh, Chef's Kiss, uh, Nightmare Alley with Chef's Kiss, Licorice Pizza, you know, all of these great movies. But the heart wants what the heart wants. And my best pick for 2021 has to go to Barb and Star, go to Vista Del Mar. It's the only 2020, 2021 movie that I have watched multiple times. It's kind of the movie I needed this year. And I think it was I was trying to come up with some sort of like notes for it. And the only thing I can say is that like only a gem of a movie can flesh out like three solid minutes of a conversation in which the two main characters are talking about all the positive characteristics of women named Trish. And it makes for absolute comedic gold. Not everything is comedic gold, but these two, the two characters played by Kristen Wiig and Annie Mumolo are just so fun to watch. And it just puts a smile on my face. And that's really what I needed in 2021. And yeah, chef's kiss to all the other brilliant movies. Power of the Dog was brilliant, but like just, <laughs> I needed Barb and Star this year. I'm so happy you picked that, Christine. That was um, Dune, and then it's Spider-Man and Barb and Star, like, right, just centimeters below it. So I'm so happy that you gave it the nod. Uh, I was looking forward to a lot of films this year, and, uh, yeah, a lot of them that I found to be uh, really solid films. I was really floored by Power of the Dog, really loved Licorice Pizza, loved Tragedy of Macbeth. Um, It was really blown away as a, a late a late entry into the race, but Nightmare Alley really stood out as well. So I really loved all those films. But the one that I kept returning to, the itch in the back of my throat since October has been my choice for best picture. And that would be, uh, again, Franz's Mass. The film is 
something of a timely miracle uh, at a time when political discourse and civil discourse have degraded into factionalism and fanaticism. Kranz's directorial debut offers us what we've been so sorely lacking, a respectful, restorative adult conversation about a difficult, emotionally charged topic. Observing the two sets of parents for context, the parents of a school shooter and the parents of one of the shooter's victims were never altogether comfortable, but it never once delves into spite or callousness. We watch these four characters, expertly played by Reed Burney, and Dowd, Jason Isaacs, and Martha Plimpton, go from awkwardly accommodating to defensive to deeply hurt to empathetic and cathartically understanding. It walks us through grief in the face of an all-too-familiar American phenomenon without clear answers, but not without mentioning all that's gone into the powder keg. But things like guns control, violent video games, and mental health are briefly mentioned and not lingered on for longer than necessary because Kranz and his crew keenly understood the complexity of the issue and the necessity of exploring these characters' grief, helplessness, and ultimately healing. Uh, it's an unshowy, understated film that offers a desperate plea for connection, understanding, and the mutual growth of restorative justice, and an unforgettably urgent work that, while demanding, positively shines by its conclusion. So that's one that we'll probably be covering sometime in the near future. A difficult film that I hope everyone's up for, but uh, a film that I think should be seen because, though it is specifically about uh, a very uniquely American and timely issue, uh, school shootings, it is also about the nature in which we conduct ourselves as adults and as human beings when trying to come to terms with different viewpoints that we share uh, and how resolving the middle ground uh, or seeking the middle ground between those those gulfs of perspective uh, can really lead toward effective he healing and communal growth. So um, fantastic film. And I would definitely recommend checking it out. I believe it's uh, for, you can rent it on YouTube right now. Well, thank you, Dave. Christine and Sam for your contributions tonight for another successful award show. When thinking back about the picks that we've made, what an eclectic collection of films. And I think that's one of my favorite parts of doing a podcast with four people is that we all get to bring kind of our own interests, films that we've liked. And it's been kind of cool over the years. Think about how we've influenced each other and films I've never would have seen. Um, or ever think about watching, I've watched and have really enjoyed. So that's why I love doing these award shows is that um, I get to appreciate the movies that you guys really appreciate and ones that I'm sure that we will be covering either in the near future or in the distant future. So that wraps up our categories for our award show. But before, so if you're just looking for what our picks were, those were all of our picks. But for the remainder of the time that we have together, Dave has collected, as he has in the past, all of our picks from the night and is going to give us a brief rundown on what films we've covered and doubles and kind of, I guess, who's gotten the most love throughout the night. Sure. And so, I mean, there have been some that have been uh, recommended multiple times by the same person. Uh, I, I'm guilty of that. I think everyone here but Sam may be guilty of that right now. <laughs> So kudos, Sam, for uh, a nice sense of balance. Um, but among those that uh, did come up more than once and were selected for multiple categories uh, or multiple times for the same category, we have uh, Barb and Star go to Vista Del Mar. That was a big one that came up, I believe, twice. Uh, we have Licorice Pizza coming up twice. We have Godzilla vs. Kong coming up twice. Mass twice. Uh, Spider-Man No Way Home, that's got two as well. Uh, Zola boasts two as far as mentions and recommendations. And finally, uh, pretty much blowing away everything by, I think, uh, I, I think I'm looking at, yeah, the, all the ones I've listed had two. This one has, I believe, five here. Uh, that would go to Villeneuve's Dune 
for 2021. So that apparently the big, uh, the big winner of the, uh, the butter bucket for 2021. I am so ashamed. (laughs) I am so ashamed that I still have not seen Dune. That was another thing where it was like, (laughs) I sit down in front of my projector and I'm like, what movie tonight? And the thought process, "Mm, I should watch a serious movie. I should probably watch Dune because I love Denis Villeneuve. Oh, shit. It's like almost two and a half hours or over two and a half hours long. I don't know. And then I missed when it was free on HBO. So then that's a whole thing. Excuses, excuses. I can't wait to see it. It's going to be a mo. It's going to be a momentous event. Uh, I'm going to throw myself a party just to watch it. We should throw it a party when it comes out. We'll all we'll all get together because it uh, you know took the big uh, the big prize this year. How how long is it actually? Like the exact wrong time. However long it is, I, I would say it feels like two hours. Although I believe it's over two and a half. <laughs> he even did the prep work and watched the original, which was pretty like a fun watch. But mm. it is 156 minutes, which is over like eh, 240. Okay, so I have to watch 150 minutes of it. Uh, I fell asleep literally six minutes in and it's not anything to do. I was very tired and should not have started that movie when I did. Um, and I woke up going, wow, what a movie. And it, I like, it just, it stopped. It was like, it knew that I was asleep. So glad I didn't get too far into it. I'm excited to actually watch it. It's interesting that one of the loudest movies ever made didn't wake you up. <laughs> uh-uh. Nope. When I'm asleep, you could literally run a vacuum cleaner over me. I'm not waking up. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you, Dave, for that breakdown. Uh, I believe in 2019, The Lighthouse was the one that ran away with the most. That had a loss. lot that year, yeah. Uh, so it's always cool to see the breakdown of them. Maybe in a couple years, uh, we'll be able to, we should, we should catalog what we've, talked about and the ones that gotten the most and then reflect we have a few more award shows under our belt that could be cool uh yeah and create the prestigious butter award you know 10 years down the line directors are going to be making televised speeches about how honored they are to receive our award and that it's really a crowning achievement that any film creator dreams of that's what here. I foresee. Yeah, it all starts right here. Well, before we wrap it up for tonight, I know that we've seen quite a few movies this year. Certainly, I think we can all say not as many as we would have liked to see. But are there any kind of shout outs, any films that maybe didn't quite make the cut for any of the categories, but films that you think our listeners should definitely check out? Maybe if we all have like two or three that didn't get mentioned tonight or only got a little mention that you think are worthy of viewing ones that you've really enjoyed and uh i can kick it off i really liked ryan reynolds free guy i could not find a category to fit it in i don't know if it deserves any of these cat it doesn't deserve any of these categories but that was an incredibly fun theatrical watch um and probably the best grand theft auto movie that could ever be made because the game is you know the movie essentially is ryan reynolds uh npc a non-player character inside grand theft auto online and he gained self-awareness and hijinks mm-hmm. ensue. There's a great cameo that Sam knows about uh, that is really wonderful. 
I thought that that's a movie that my friends and I, but it's like, oh, we definitely have to revisit that. We got to watch that again when it's streaming. So I think, I don't think our listeners should sleep on Free Guy. I think if you like Ryan Reynolds, if you like comedies, especially if you like video games, uh, Free Guy is definitely one not to sleep on. That's so funny, Connor, because like I, I dislike all three of those things. <laughs> Um, so not even the cameo can bring me to see that movie, but you know what? I've heard really great things about it. I, I really wanted to find a way to fit fear street into my picks, but I just couldn't. So those three movies, they all came out this year. They are fun. So if you get a chance, give them, give them a goal. I haven't seen the third one yet, but I enjoyed, uh, I thought the first two were pretty cool. Especially the second one. I think that one I, I like more than the first. That one's my favorite. Uh, I think I kind of rattled off a lot of shout outs, but did want to highlight particularly uh, Milena Smith, uh, who is the second co-lead in Parallel Mothers. Uh, her performance is amazing. Penelope Cruz, always great. And Almodovar knows how to like just direct her and just showcase all of her amazing talent. But the other uh, main lead in the movie is is wonderful. So can't wait to see this performer, uh, what what uh, she does in the future. Uh, also wanted to give Paul Schrader a, a shout out for Card Counter. That movie was really hard to watch and it's I wouldn't recommend it for everybody, but it is fun to see him uh, whipping out some movies, uh, some strong movies. Uh, and it's always fun to see writers and directors in sort of the later, later stages of their career being like, yep, still got it, still can make taut and really interesting movies. So wanted to give those two, both performer and director, uh, shout outs. I'd say uh, real quickly, uh, Plan B, uh, that Hulu's Plan B, a Hulu original movie directed by uh, Natalie Morales. Uh, I've talked about it a little bit before on the pod. It's um, it's got two fantastic lead performances. Uh, it is a very raunchy kind of teen comedy, but with a lot of heart and uh, with a lot of really important things to say about the pharmaceutical industry as far as how its impact on uh, and re- women's reproductive rights and things like that. So a pretty interesting film and definitely worth your time if you're a fan of the uh, kind of coming of age, uh, raunchy teen film genre, which I'm normally not. So that's saying something. And also uh, a film... Uh, debut film by Stephen Karam, that the humans. I think I mentioned this on the pod before as well. That uh, a, a playwright who was taking, I think, I believe it's a play, it was a play already, and take adapting it to the screen, and it turns into pretty interesting results, some pretty complex stage design, uh, and a really intense use of a really smothering and intense and frightening use of darkness at the end of the film, like literal darkness. Uh, that makes it really, really interesting, and of course. Um, Richard Jenkins turns in a wonderful performance in it as well. So I would say that's certainly one to keep on your radar if you're looking for stuff from last year. Awesome. Those are some great recs. Um, I'm sure that in the next couple months or years, we'll be discussing some of the movies that we've talked about tonight. Once again, be sure to let us know what some of your favorite movies or TV shows of 2021 were. We'd love to hear them. If you send us an email to butterwiththatpodcast at gmail.com, we'd be more than happy to read it out for you if you want it to be read. Um, you can also follow us on Twitter at butterwiththat1 and Facebook and Instagram at butterwiththat. Uh, before we sign off, any kind of final thoughts, lingering feelings about movies of 2021 or anything else that folks want to say before we sign off? There's a lot of stuff that was announced early into 2021 as far as being in production or even before then that I was very excited about. 
So not so much this year. Uh, not a whole lot that I, I know of coming out that I'm super jazzed about, but we'll see what the year brings because there were a lot of sleeper hits that came out later into this past year. So uh, hopefully 2022 brings us some gems as well. Be sure to come back next, roughly February, late February, early March of 2023 for our award show of 2022. Can't wait to see what we're going to be talking about then. With that, I think it's time we roll the red carpet back up. Christine's going to take the peacock wings off and we're going to return to our normal lives. Just folks who come around and talk about movies once a week. Uh, We can't wait for you guys to listen to our upcoming theme and be sure to follow us on all of the socials, send us an email, and be sure to follow the Movie John Podcast Network. Uh, we're thrilled to be part of the network. You've probably heard the stinger at the beginning and the stinger at the end. Um, so be sure to check out all the other for other wonderful podcasts with the Movie John Podcast Network. And with that, have a good whatever and enjoy the movies in 2022. And we'll see you back at the Butter Without Awards 4 roughly this time next year. This has been a Movie John podcast.